Father, I pray once again that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In his book, Shaped by the Cross, Ken Geyer talks about the, uh, the incident that occurred a number of years ago when um, a person he calls a madman uh, jumped over the railings and began attacking Michelangelo's uh, statue, uh, the Pieta. As he was raining down blows with his hammer, on that statue, he was yelling, I am Jesus Christ, I am Jesus Christ. By the time they got him under control and away from it, he had done a considerable amount of damage to this beautiful marble statue, and it took about 10 months for the best experts to repair it. And after telling this, Geyer says that when he thinks of that incident, he said it makes him think about the, the presence of evil in the world. And how it is, it is continually trying to destroy. I mean, the very heart of evil is destruction. Everything about the evil one is destruction. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that because I don't know, we don't know anyone whose, whose complete entire intent of existence is to do evil, to destroy to tear apart. I mean, we may encounter people sometimes who, who uh, you know, they, they do some destructive things, but, but not someone whose entire existence is that. And yet, this is what evil is about. The whole point, the whole existence of evil is to destroy, to tear down, to create chaos, to take all that God has made beautiful, including us, and destroy it. All we have to do is look around. All we have to do is, is watch or read the news, and you see the work of evil in the world and the destructiveness. And let's be honest, all we have to do at times is just to look inside of ourselves. And one of the most, and the most natural reaction to that is to feel helpless about it, maybe hopeless about it. It's into that helplessness and hopelessness that the world has been dealing with since the Garden of Eden and the fall of human beings rejecting God. Into that comes the cross. Dallas Willard says that the, the, the exclusiveness of Christian revelation is really the cross. It is what sets us apart it, it is the, the heart of who we are and, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It keeps coming back to the cross. And as Paul is writing here to the Colossians, he brings them back to the cross. And the question that, that for us as we think about the cross and evil and all these things is what, what, the, what exactly happens on the cross that, that makes us not have to be helpless and hopeless about evil? Paul says in verse 13 that out of, out of the cross comes forgiveness of sins. If you grew up in Sunday school, you, you learned that very quickly. That because Jesus dies on the cross, our sins are forgiven. He takes upon himself the sins of the world, the guilt, the shame of that. 
and because of that, we are forgiven. It is an, it is an awesome promise that we have, that when we sin, as John writes, if we confess our sins, the one who went to the cross is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. We have forgiveness. But verse 14, he talks about that in just a little bit different way. He talks about how our debt has been canceled. And how we, the word canceled really means to wipe clean. It's like writing on a whiteboard and, and wiping that off with an eraser and it's completely gone. What a promise to know that we are not just forgiven, but our sins are forgotten. I've always loved that line in Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins, our transgressions from us. And Paul says, we're not just forgiven, but still we have to live with all the guilt and shame of that. We are forgiven. And all of that is removed. And he talks about this in sort of a legal term of like standing before a judge. And Jesus steps in on the cross and enables the judge to look at us despite the fact that we have sinned and says we're not guilty because of Christ. But to look at the cross from a legal perspective is not the only way to look at it. There's also the relational dynamic of the cross. In the relation in the cross, Christ not only forgives our sins, but he restores our relationship with God. It's really sort of the coming of the apex of Jesus' story of the prodigal son. That, that because of Christ, because of his death on the cross, the sin that has that bro broken relationship between us and God has been restored. And we can come to him and find relationship. And we can, it, it, it's not standing for a judge, it's now coming to our loving Heavenly Father who has been wooing us and calling us and caring for us and wanting us all the time. But because of Christ, now the way has been made for us to find that restoration. But that is also not the only way to look at the cross. One of his books, Derek Flood, says that when you think about justice in the New Testament, it doesn't just mean punishment. In fact, in the New Testament, it doesn't really the idea of punishment really isn't all that significant. The idea that you find of justice is to make new again. To make right again. To restore. We see this ultimately as we get to the end of the book of Revelation when we find that all of God's creation that has been broken and shattered is now restored, made new, and that starts at the cross. And there is, there is this, this sense in which what Jesus does on the cross, as wonderful as it is to have our sins forgiven and to have the debt wiped clean and to restore a relationship with God, there is even this deeper sense that Paul writes about in verse 15 when he says that he, he triumphed over the evil powers. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. 
there is something about the cross in which Jesus not only makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven and to be in right relationship with God, but he also breaks the chains of evil in us and in our world. Once and for all, he conquers evil. When Jesus cries out from the cross, it is finished. He has completed the work that the Father gave him to do. And at the heart of that work is to defeat evil, to overwhelm it, to break the bonds of evil that, chain, that enslave the world and enslave us. We're free. He has broken those chains. And as wonderful it is to be forgiven, as wonderful it is to have that relationship restored, to know that in Christ, we don't have to continue to be in bondage to evil and sin, takes all of this in the cross to a whole new level. One of the Wesley's hymns talks about he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. What an awesome picture. There is a sense in which Paul is saying that Jesus takes upon himself all that evil can do, all that evil can give, and he absorbs all of it without sinning. And in essence, as Paul says, he, he, he makes evil, he give, takes away its power. And after the early service this morning, one of the children came to me and said, how does Jesus do that? Like, that's a really good question. I've got a, I'll tell you a theologian you can go talk to. It will give you the answer to that. We, and I sat there for a second. We thought about it. I'm trying to think, how do I put this into the terms that a child can understand? And quite frankly, a lot of these things are beyond our ability to understand. But the, in the moment, what came to my mind was I, I asked him, I said, do you, do you ever use markers? He said, oh, yeah, I'm using a marker right now at home. I said, great. I said, do your markers ever wear out? Yeah, I've got one that's about to wear out now. I said, it's not exactly that, but there is something like that. That the, the marker of evil ex, expends all that it has on Jesus until it's left with nothing. And it's now powerless because of Christ. You know what the most fascinating thing about that is? Is that Jesus does that not by might and strength and power. He does it by love. He does it by giving up himself on the cross. It's a phenomenal thing to ponder the fact that God's greatest weapon against evil is love. You know, what Paul writes here, he, Paul says, uh, in this way, he, he disarmed the, the rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Anybody who looked at the cross on that Good Friday, that first, when Jesus is hanging there, no one would have said that evil was being shamed. No one would have said evil's being overwhelmed. But it was. Jesus 
Jesus uses the power of giving up himself to set us free. E.J. Swoboda talks about the unconventional, uncon, the unconventional Christian hero that we have. Another writer says that, you know, when you boil it all down, Jesus is not Zeus. That's not how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. He goes to a cross. And in that cross sets us free. Are we still going to struggle? Of course we are. We haven't arrived yet. But as Paul says, when you're set free, you have a power within you that doesn't have to succumb to sin. There's the thing about freedom, too. When we think of freedom, we tend to think, oh, great, now I can do whatever I want. I mean, isn't that the way we tend to think of What does freedom mean for us? Freedom means I'm no longer held back by other people's expectations, by rules, all that kind of thing. And Paul says here, he talks here about how, you know, you, you don't have to live in those rules anymore. Don't touch this, don't handle that, those kinds of things. He said, you don't have to worry about that anymore. And on the surface, that appears to be that Paul is saying, we're right. It means you can now do whatever you want to do. But I'm pretty sure that that's not what Paul means. I'm pretty sure that the meaning of Jesus from the cross setting us free isn't to enable us to be more selfish to be more self-centered, to be more self-absorbed. I think the freedom we have is now the freedom to give ourselves away. We don't have to be, we're not in bondage anymore to making sure people know how wonderful we are. We're not in bondage anymore to making sure that people know we're always right we're not in bondage anymore to, to, to prove ourselves and to, and to gather and to hoard and to, and to accumulate and all the things that we tend to do as we think about freedom in the way this world thinks about freedom. We've been set free to not have to live like that anymore. We've been set free that we can give ourselves away in love, in service, And out of that, people see Jesus in us in a way that we would have never dreamed. And what I find so fascinating is that we look at that and think, oh, I have to give up my life. Jesus goes willingly and lovingly to the cross. I love that verse in Hebrews 12 that says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It's not, it's not a, a punishment on us that now we have to give our lives away. It's freedom to be able to give our lives away. To be able to speak the truth with with a heart that is genuinely about love. To care for people, whether we ever get anything back from them or not. 
to serve in ways that nobody else notices and nobody else sees and to find joy, the joy of Christ in that mindset. Because the chains of self have been broken by the cross. And I know that when we look around the world, it's, it doesn't appear as if evil's been broken at all. We live in a world of destruction and chaos, and for, it, it looks to everybody that evil is just as powerful as it's ever been. But Paul says that's the faith we put in Jesus Christ, that because of the cross, what we see isn't reality. What we see is, is not the whole picture. The pain is there, the evil is there, it's real, it's in, and it is wreaking havoc. But God is at work. And evil doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. That's our hope and our faith. And the question with which we're confronted is, if we've been set free, do we live like we believe it? If, you've, if you're a sports person, you may know that this weekend is sort of the apex of the college basketball season. Tonight is the championship game in, the, in women's college basketball. Tomorrow night's the men's championship game. And over the course of the last few weeks, as, this, as the college basketball tournament's been going on, you know, uh, been watching a lot of games. You know, one of my sons has been going around singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> and, and we do kind of feel that way. And I've watched a lot of games. And I've watched a lot of games in my life. And there's something that I hear on a fairly regular basis when I'm watching these games. I actually heard this in a... Golf match I was watching the other day, too. Announcers talk about this. Coaches talk about this. Players talk about this. You get near the end of the game, maybe three, four minutes left, and one team's ahead. They're not far enough ahead that there's no way the other team can come back, but they're just ahead by, a little, by enough. The game is theirs if they just play it out. And you'll hear people talk about how when you get to that point and you're ahead, you can play two different ways. You can play to win, or you can play to not lose. Now, it sounds the same, right? I mean, play to win, play to not lose. It's, if you win, you don't lose. If you don't lose, you win. It sounds like the same thing, but it's not. It's a psychological way of approaching those last few minutes of the game. If, you're, if your team plays not to lose, then you play fearfully. The whole, the whole aura of, of your thinking is, I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose. And there's stress and pressure, and you can feel it squeezing them. I don't want to, I don't want to miss this shot. I don't want to make that bad pass. And invariably, teams that think that way seem to end up losing. The pressure is just too much. The fear just overwhelms them. But teams that play to win are teams that play they play, we're going to play the same way we have all game that's got us to this lead. We're going to play with confidence. If we make a mistake, we'll move on. And those teams tend to end up winning. So here's the question for us. If Christ has indeed conquered 
the powers of evil and has set us free. Are we living not to lose or are we living to win? Are we using the grace of Christ to win, to, to keep moving forward, to keep growing in confidence in Christ and all these done for us? Or do we live in fear? And you know, when we come to this table today, we come to this table because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This is a table of freedom. This is a table of grace, God's grace that has set us free. And in a few moments when we come and we eat and drink, my prayer is that we will be so overwhelmed by what God has done for us in Christ that we will not just know that our sins are forgiven, that we brought them to God and that he has wiped the slate clean as we have brought them to him, but that we have been set free and we are going forth to live like we believe it. As people who are so, who are so free in Christ, we can actually give ourselves away in his grace. Holy Father, we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. We pray that you will help us to see that in Christ our chains have been broken, that we've been set free through your grace and mercy. And in that truth, let us live in surrender. Let us live in openness, in repentance, in love. May we be filled with you as we grow in you. Father, we pray your anointing, your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake today. Let it be food for our souls. Let it inspire us. Let it open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to who you are, to what you've done, and to what you call us to be in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.